This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Thank you to our newest sponsor, Keg Shoe Keg Tracking. Learn more about what they do at www.kegshoe.ca. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to brew different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to... Brew Ninja a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. There's some some really simple rules that you should follow, and if you do, then your yeast is going to be healthy and happy, and your beer is going to be good. It really, time isn't 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 important at all. It's important to keep the yeast in its exponential growth phase. Focus on that instead of just time itself. This week on the show, how yeast propagation works, both in the lab and in the brewery at Urban Chestnut Brewing Company. Hi there, my name is Florian Kuplent. I am the co-founder and brewmaster at Urban Chestnut Brewing Company in St. Louis and Volzach, Germany. Talk about the goals of propagation and the importance of fresh yeast. What happens when we don't use fresh yeast? So really the goal of propagation is to come up with enough viable and vital yeast to uh, start your brew. Unhealthy yeast can lead to stalled fermentations. Everybody's had a fermenter that does not do what it's supposed to in the in the, in the desired time frame, um, which could also be slow or stopped reduction of diacetyl. So you may have beer that you don't want to drink because of the high diacetyl level. Um, we could end up with turbid beer, filtration issues, uh, several microbiological risks, and that's typically related to the pH drop. Typically, a good fermentation, you should see a pretty quick pH drop uh, from the pH of the wort coming from the brew house, around 5.2 to 5.4 typically. Uh, and that should drop to below 4.7, 4.6, 4.5 relatively quickly. And the reason why that is good is because... Uh, 
bacterial spores can actually grow in wort. They don't necessarily get killed during wort boiling. Um, and at pHs that are higher, typically above 4.5 or so, they can still grow. So we want to drop that pH as quickly as possible to not give them a chance to, to grow in wort. Um, those are really the, the biggest and most important factors that, that go into that. I think that probably a lot of the principles that we're going to discuss are the same, whether you're doing a lab scale propagation or a brewery scale propagation, but maybe talk a little about some of the options for starting a propagation and that decision point of whether the brewer should start from slants, an internal brink, active dry yeast, or a fresh liquid culture from an outside lab. I think the biggest factor to consider is what are your capabilities? Do you have a lab already? Do you have somebody that is capable of doing the work in-house if you wanted to start a propagation from scratch? Do you have a lab? Do you have yeast storage facilities that are capable of storing yeast uh, over a longer period of time? So it really depends on, on, on what you're looking at. And also, obviously, the big thing to consider is, is economics. Um, if you don't have any of the equipment and you have to purchase a lab and, and uh, equipment to, to store yeast in the long term, that's that's going to add up a little bit. Over the long run, it'll surely pay off if you don't have to buy yeast constantly. But those, those are the kind of the factors. Um, if you have a little bit of lab and you have somebody that has experience handling microbiological tasks in a brewery, I think the switch to moving from purchased yeast to, store, to, to, to propagating it in-house is really not that complicated. It's not that uh, hard to do. But you really want to set your procedures, make sure you follow them, and do a lot of quality control. Get some uh, quality control media that you're comfortable with and make sure that you test every batch. Because obviously, if you have a contaminated propagation and you bring that out to the brewery, uh, it's quickly that gets spread around and it, it co could cause a lot of problems and, and you could end up with a lot of bad beer very, very quickly. What do you recommend in the way of quality control during propagation? And is this different depending on the yeast source or are there certain checks that should be done regardless of where the yeast came from? I would recommend doing quality control regardless of where the yeast came from. Uh, typically, the steps in propagation in, in, in the lab are pretty quick. Uh, unfortunately, microbiological tests still take a decent amount of time unless you have access to PCR. Um, what I would do is just grow up your culture in the lab and then take a sample of that, put it in a specific yeast media, uh, maybe add or use a medium as well that can detect beer spoilers and potentially even wild yeast just to be on the safe side. Uh, again, typically those results take about three to seven days depending on the uh, concentration of the, if there were contamination and on the medium that you use. Um, in the meantime, obviously you don't want that to hang around. In the meantime, you probably want to introduce that to the brewery, but if you were to get a positive result and uh, discover a contamination, at least it would be contained in that, uh, prop and you wouldn't have to, to destroy more beer. You could kind of isolate that pretty quickly. And in regards to what types of tests, I would do the same thing for propagations in the brewery as well. So 
follow the same tests, use the same media. Um, if that's NBB or Fast Orange or any of the other uh, media types, as I said, depends on, on what you're used to or what you're planning on using. Uh, but I would stick with the same procedures there for both uh, methods. Talk about the equipment needed to do a lab scale propagation. So to start a propagation in the lab, the first thing you'd have to obviously have, you have a yeast source, I'm assuming uh, we'll, we'll take that out of the consideration for now. So to start a propagation in the lab, you would just need some uh, flasks to be able to grow yeast up. Ideally, you have an autoclave. Anything that touches yeast should really be sterilized and just uh, boiling water or temperatures of 100 degrees C, 212 Fahrenheit really don't do enough to kill all, mostly the, the bacteria and spores. Uh, running an autoclave cycle would be the ideal thing and, and re really make sure that you're safe in that regard. So getting an autoclave is pretty much necessary to be able to do any propagations. Um, if you look at some of the online sources, you can get one relatively cheap if you buy it used. The Where they get expensive is basically the larger the size of the autoclave the chamber gets, the more expensive they get. But if you limit the flask size that you're going to use to whatever you have available, then those are relatively affordable. Um, other than that, some sort of a uh, Bunsen burner is, is, is great to be able to uh, use your, uh, do your manip manipulations under that. And even better would be to have a flow hood in the lab that allows you to do manip manipulations in a, in a sterile environment. You basically have sterile airflow over your work surface. The air gets basically pumped through a filter and that filter makes sure it's a HEPA filter that filter makes sure that the air that touches anything that's under that hood is sterile and working within that area is really the the best scenario for any any manipulations from a from a microbiological standpoint if you have a lab shaker that definitely helps to speed up the propagation process basically while the culture is being shaken it uh, the yeast cells get better access to the nutrients and you also incorporate a little bit of uh, oxygen from the surrounding atmosphere so that definitely helps to speed up the process would you use a stir plate if you don't have access to a lab shaker a stir plate is good i think the one concern with a stir plate is the uh, the the, uh, the stirs that you have to introduce into the culture you have to make sure that they are so you'd want to autoclave those in the liquid ideally that you going to use for propagation just to make sure they're they're safe um they have some sort of a plastic teflon cover on it typically not ideal because you don't know what the surface looks like there could always be um some some microorganisms that harbor in a, a rougher surface so i if there's nothing available i think they're probably okay and as i said if you could sterilize the bar inside the words that you're going to use for propagation inside the container inside the flask that you're using i think that should make it pretty safe um other than i wouldn't drop the bar into the prop just before you started i think the risk of contaminating your culture is just too too high all right very good 
And then the last thing, a uh, microscope with a hematocytometer is, uh, I, I'd say it's some, somewhat optional. Obviously, it's great to look at the yeast cells under the microscope. Uh, it's great for, for counting yeast cells. Um, if you're really just concerned about microbiological uh, contaminations, there's some media out there that will give you an indication based on the color change. So for that, it's not necessary. Uh, definitely good practice to count yeast cells, though, and, and look at the, the shape of the cells just to give you an idea over time. You'll get used to what they should, what they look like typically, and if something looks different, you'll notice. So having, having, having access to a microscope is definitely uh, good, but as I said, not necessarily uh, critical for, for, for the operation. Let's get into a typical lab scale propagation procedure. What does that look like in your breweries? So we have a uh, yeast freezer. It's basically a, a, a tank with liquid nitrogen, and we store all of our cultures in there. Uh, when we make fresh cultures, we have these little vials with about two milliliters fill volume, and you prep the yeast in the lab. You basically start a fresh propagation, and then uh, inject or, or transfer the yeast viable live healthy yeast into one of those vials and add a glycerin solution and that helps to protect the yeast while being frozen um, and then you put a bunch of those vials in a little plastic box you should mark them obviously that's very important you want to make sure that you know what you actually have in your box ideally also make a notice of where you have what yeast strain what boxes are filled with what yeast strain so you have to only pull out the one box that uh with the yeast strain that you're looking for and then you can uh put that box into the liquid nitrogen freezer uh in the beginning it's always good to put that in the top we use we don't submerse the boxes into the liquid nitrogen itself. We just use the gas phase, which you don't quite get the same low temperatures, but it's still plenty cold to keep yeast alive for, for a very long time. Um, and then if you want to freeze it initially, it's best to, to kind of keep it on the top shelf where it's a little bit less cold that helps to bring that down, helps to bring down the temperature quickly. And then you can move it to a lower shelf closer to the liquid level in that tank. And those tanks are really not that expensive, to be honest. Uh, you just got to make sure that you refill them with liquid nitrogen occasionally. I think we do that every 30 days or so. We, uh, we make a few products that are not carbonated. So we use liquid nitrogen to dose our cans with that. So we always have liquid nitrogen in-house and we just steal a little bit of that to top off the uh, tank for the yeast storage. So that's, that's a pretty easy process for us. Okay. Um, why don't you walk us through that, how you step up that volume in, in your lab? Starting with that vial. So when we want to start a propagation, we pull one of those vials out of the yeast freezer. And then uh, since it's stored so cold, it defrosts pretty quickly. Um, and then that vial gets introduced into 50 milliliters of wort gets in, in a in a Erlmeyer flask with a uh, top on and then we put that on the shaker and let it shake at just room temperature is fine for for most yeast strains and then typically you get pretty quick uh, start of the propagation or the, the the growth of the yeast and uh, you can 
then take that 50 milliliter culture and step it up to a typically what we use is a 500 mil word culture. The step up is typically one to 10 or so. And we create several of those 500 mil flasks or bottles, actually in our case, to then go into the plant and introduce the fermenter or our propagator with, with a few of those, those bottles uh, of yeast. Uh, and the reason why we do several is because you always have a little bit of foam formation. So if you have a two, two liter, 2000 mil bottle, uh, you put that on the shaker, you cannot really fill them more than 500 to about a thousand milliliters. The rest is kind of headspace. You definitely want to make sure that the yeast doesn't over foam the bottle because then you could get uh, contaminations that wander back into the bottle. So that's, that's very important. Um, ideally, keep. Do you ever use any anti foam in that process to to reduce that or no? You know what we don't in the lab. We do in our plant propagation. We use an anti foam there because we found that some of the yeast strains, like our Bavarian wheat, is so active that it just is almost impossible to control that. Even if we don't have a very high fill level in the propagator, and that's why we use uh, anti foam. And you can ideally, well, the one that we use, we know we can autoclave again proper sterilization techniques and, and making sure that everything that you introduce into that process is, is sterile is, is really critical. Um, so autoclave the sample or the, the amount of uh, anti-foam that you're using when you, before you add it, again, just to make sure that everything's fine and, and no, no beer spoilers can be introduced. Got it. Uh, now, are you using, uh, you know, a lot of the literature refers to using like a Carlsberg flask or something like that, which are not inexpensive devices. Um, do you use anything like that? Or do, are you transferring your, um, your freshly propagated yeast to the brewery uh, by some other way? We do. We have, it's essentially, it's a, it's a piece of four inch pipe that has two ends on it that we can autoclave and that holds, uh, I think it's about 10 liters or so. Um, so just before we, we don't we don't do any propagations in there. We just use it as a transfer vessel, so mm -hmm. you can transfer the culture bottles or the culture flasks, whatever you're using, into that little tank. Uh, it just has a, a clamp on hood, it under under the hood. Just fill it yeah. up, and we don't even need pressure on that. The opening uh, on that it's, it basically has a has a has a, a valve and a septic sample valve on it with a membrane that can be autoclaved. So the whole thing goes into the autoclave just before you, we use it. We let it cool down, put it under the hood, uh, take our culture bottles or culture flasks, fill the, uh, the bullet is what we call it with, with that. And then take that out to the lab, sorry, to the, to the plant propagator, uh, attach that to the propagator itself uh, with a hose that was also autoclaved. And we don't need to put pressure on that because the opening is big enough that the culture just kind of flows into into the propagator. So we have a closed system out in the in the brewery. Obviously, under the hood, you're going to open the top of that that tank, and you're going to open the bottles. But since you have sterile air flowing across your work surface, that's that's a pretty safe operation. Coming up, it's relatively easy to do and will really result in, in, in a lot of uh, 
better fermentations and a lot less issues throughout your process. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Brought to you by our friends at BSG. We all know that the best brewing results come from the best ingredients. BSG offers the largest variety of quality ingredients to create outstanding beers. BSG brings the best malt, hops, and additives from around the world to your brew house. Their knowledgeable and dedicated staff comes from the brewing industry and can assist you in product consultation for your recipe formulation. Contact your dedicated sales or customer support rep or become a customer at bsgcraft.com slash be a customer. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience, offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us/mbaa to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Ontario is doing a webinar February 24th on the topic of safety hazards in the brewery. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets at Surly's Shide Hall February 24th. District Pittsburgh meets February 25th at Mindful Brewing Company. District Great Plains meets February 26th at Crane Brewing in Raytown, Missouri. District Philly meets at the Iron Hill Tap House in Exton March 25th. The 2022 Brewing Summit that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. What are some do's and don'ts for lab scale propagations? I mean, the biggest thing is 
to use septic techniques. Uh, you got to teach that you're, if you if you if you're not familiar doing any microbiological transfers or anything like that, it's it's there's some some videos on YouTube that you can use to kind of teach yourself that uh, basically anything that gets touched, if it's your hand or uh, any any container or or flask uh, that could potentially come into contact with yeast needs to be autoclaved, and in that chain of sterility needs to be kept throughout the whole process so just keeping that in mind that anything that touches the yeast needs to be autoclaved that includes um any um uh, loop that you use to transfer microorganism don't put that on the work surface if you do make sure that you put it through the buns and burners through the flame and to sterilize it so just little things like that where you should really focus on on aseptic techniques um, it's always hard to handle different things at the same time. So if you do propagations, I always recommend that you only do one at a time. Uh, it, mixing up two cultures is, is, is happens really quickly. Uh, just forgetting which one was on the right side, which was which one was on the left side. Uh, making sure that you mark all flasks and, and bottles and containers where you do have cultures in them. Uh, to make sure that you realize what date they were started and what culture they contain. Um, some things that are maybe a tad less important. I always use, or we try to use pale wort. We was, always use our standard 12, gra 12 OG wort that's not too highly hopped for our propagation uh, that keeps it consistent. Uh, the pale wort, you can actually kind of look through the flask and see what's going on in there so that uh, you can kind of monitor that a little bit darker worts that's that's going to be a little bit harder to do and then also if you were to propagate in, in darker wort, that gives you a lot less flexibility to blend that dark wort away pale wort can go pretty much into anything the low bitterness is important because uh hops are obviously uh they're they have some some compounds in them that that um act as 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 uh, do they hinder the growth of bacteria and organisms and yeast as well so they they can be can be bad um so just a 20 to 25 ibu wort is, is typically is is ideal um one thing that's that's important is to keep the yeast in its exponential growth phase so there's no need to artificially extend the length of your propagation you should really look at in this case ideally the cell count i mean i just we we we, we don't necessarily don't we don't need the microscope but uh i think to get a good um, idea of the cell count obviously, obviously you'd want to look at uh, the cell concentration you can go by experience though if you always use the same concentration that you start your propagation with and it's at the same temperature roughly you're going to get very similar results and you're going to be able to tell if the yeast is active by kind of shaking the flask a little bit and, and looking at the development of co2 that gives a good indication of how active that culture is um, and then immediately transfer it once you reach like an 80 to 100 million cell count per milliliter transfer that into the next step up don't 
let it settle out or wait another day or so. It's uh, really not necessary. And, and I think a lot of people make the mistakes, make the mistake that they think they need to wait a day or two for, for one step up process. It really time isn't, isn't, isn't important at all. It's important to keep the yeast in its exponential growth phase. Focus on that instead of just time itself. Um, and then one last thing is to target a minimum cell count of about 2 million per mil after dil dilution for lagers, um, probably half that 0.5 to 1 million cells per mil for ales. And uh, the reason for that is, again, a microbiological uh, to avoid contamination, the quicker that propagation gets going, uh, the less risk of bacterial spores, uh, growth of bacterial spores is, and just having that minimum cell concentration assures that the yeast will grow relatively quickly. Once we get into brewery scale propagations, there are basically two major propagator designs to consider. Talk about those. So when Hansen came up with his design, uh, they had a wort sterilization tank. They got wort from the brew house that they pumped into that tank, sterilized in that tank, cooled it down, and then pumped it into the actual propagator. Uh, and the reason why they did that is because they wanted to make sure that they used sterile wort. Um, I guess at the time, the processes weren't quite as advanced as they are today, and uh, they couldn't ensure that the sterile chain would be able to, the wort would be able to stay sterile from, from the brew house all the way to their propagator. To, in today's world, with stainless steel piping and rigorous CIP, it's pretty easy to assure that wort stays sterile on the way to the propagator. So the uh, sterilization tank is not necessary and it's actually also not recommended and the reason for that is that the less heat you can subject your wort to the better it is for the quality uh, by by sterilizing wort twice in the brew house and then in a sterilization tank uh, you kill a lot of vitamins and some of the other nutrients that yeast needs are getting uh, changed, and uh, ideally that doesn't happen just to ensure that yeast gets all their 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 nutrients. Um, that's the design that we have in our brew house. Uh, sorry, in our in our brewery. Uh, so we basically have a pipe that runs past the propagators, and then with a valve that we can open, we can go straight into those, um, divert the wort stream. And we just do a regular brew house CIP and sterilization before we fill a propagator. So it's a it's a process that's easy to control and uh, can be can be monitored pretty pretty easily as well. Okay, um, I forget the exact volume you said that's coming out of the lab. So remind me of that, and then describe the steps, the timing, and the volumes for a typical brewery scale propagation at Urban Chestnut. So the Volumes, it's going to depend a little bit on the yeast strain. Uh, lagers need more yeast mass to be able to, to start a quick fermentation compared to ales. Um, when you do step-ups, that step-up factor of 1 to 10 is still, is still a good number to go by. Um, so 10 liters could go into 
roughly a barrel, let's say, and uh, that could then be used to go up to 10 to 20 barrels, I'd say. So if you have a 20-barrel brew house and you take 10 liters of culture out of the wort, out of the, the lab, you could first fill that propagator with one barrel roughly, go through your plus minus 24 hour <clears throat> uh, step up step and then fill it a second time to get to your final amount that you need. Um, again, it's going to depend on, on the amount of, of, of wort that you produce on the yeast strain, on the strength of the wort. Um, it's always good to kind of trial different things, see how they go, and then uh, adjust your process based on that. Okay, what about for the rest of us thrifty small brewers out there who can't afford a shiny propagation system? Can we just use one of our fermenters instead? You can definitely use a fermenter if you want to save some money and, and have you don't have a dedicated propagation system uh, in, in your brewery. Uh, it's always good to well sterilize the tank so maybe maybe run a couple cip cycles make sure that you clean it immediately after the uh, last batch is pumped out of that tank if the tank sits there for too long uh, the brown tafe has a tendency to stick onto the tank surface and it's harder to clean that off so cleaning doing a cip immediately after that is, is ideal so you don't run into any residue that would get stuck on the tank um what else is advisable i mean in itself the, the aeration is critical uh aeration air or oxygen helps yeast grow and produce biomass so if you have access to sterile air in your in your uh fermentation cellar use that to bubble some air through that tank to make sure that the yeast gets supplied with oxygen and the uh, supply is not going to be as good because your, your your bubble size is going to be relatively large but it's still going to work especially if the tanks aren't that large you, temperature control is obviously you can rely on your control system that you already use for your fermenter um, and then ideally you'd be able to take a sample at the level that you have your propagation in. So that's not possible, not, not a deal breaker, but uh, if you have a way to take a sample of that culture, that's, that's obviously a good way to see what's actually going on in terms of yeast cell count. And are the timings and, and step-up volumes going to be pretty much the same, whether we're using a fermenter versus a propagator? I mean, there's not really any, any difference uh, in that regard, right? Yeah, the only the only big difference would be the aeration. Um, if you have a dedicated propagator, typically they're designed for optimal oxygen or air supply to the to the culture. Uh, if you just bubble air into that tank, the surface or the interaction is not going to be as good. So it may take a little bit longer to get to the cell mass. Uh, to the same cell mass that you're uh, that you would get with a propagator that would take a, a shorter period of time so that's definitely something to watch and i think that's probably the biggest difference the efficiency of uh, the aeration i would agree and i would say that there's a uh, there's definitely a difference between having the optimal amount of air and just having some air but there's a massive difference between no air and just having some air so 
Um, Absolutely. And, and and one other thing I, I, I highly recommend, I know that a lot of people are using pure oxygen to uh, aerate or, or oxygenate wort. I highly prefer air um, for various reasons, especially in the case where you do have your uh, fermenter and use that as a propagator just by bubbling more volume of gas through the tank you have better mixing uh, you drive more co2 out which is uh, not good for the yeast that that uh, harms yeast growth actually and uh, oxygen pure oxygen in, in a tank is actually well obviously it oxidizes thing it's it's actually fairly risky to have that sitting sitting around in a brewery uh, it, it it can be if there's any 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 explosions or any fires around that that really is gonna make things a lot worse quickly if you have a leaking cylinder or any leaking connection so i always try to stay away from from pure oxygen in in any brewery setting what's the best way to determine the ideal timing of propagation steps so that you keep it in that exponential growth phase but don't hit the window too early or too late yeah, to get that number, you really have to look at the cell count. I mean, that's basically the only way to be able to tell. Um, ideally, you get somewhere between 80 and 100 million cells, again, depending on the on the yeast strain that you're using. But that's a good range to, to, to keep the, the culture in. Um, good other way to look at is is probably looking at ph but you'd have to do that more than once every eight hours or so probably every two to four hours i would say if you see that you get a good rapid ph drop um, that's also a pretty good indication and just going by experience i think as long as your your variables don't change that dramatically and you always do the same thing use the same volumes use the same concentration of culture that comes from the lab your temperatures are the same, your wort's the same, and um, behaves the same, then you're going to be pretty consistent throughout throughout your propagations and shouldn't have to worry about that too much. I know you uh, mentioned that you're targeting you know, different uh, outcomes in terms of cell density for AL strains versus lager strains, but are there any other differences when propagating ales versus lagers, temperature, or or really any anything else that's different? Uh, ales, their work a lot. F- ale strains work a lot faster, um, so the oxygen requirement is going to increase quite a bit more throughout propagation, just because you are creating more cells, more cells will need more oxygen. So increasing the aeration towards the end of propagation is is, is good or is good practice. Um, and always be aware of overfoaming. That's, that's, that's a bigger issue with AL strains. Other than that, it's pretty, pretty much the same, I would say. Do you recommend using yeast nutrient during your propagations? If you have wort that's made from 100% malt, I think you probably don't need yeast nutrient. In most cases, it probably is not going to hurt if you add a little bit. Um, but typically, if you have all malt wort, you should be okay. Maybe add a little bit of zinc. That's always in in uh, demand, and, and, and typically yeast doesn't get enough of that. But other than that, I wouldn't say you have to add it. Obviously, if you do propagations for seltzers, 
for example, you're going to add yeast nutrient to your seltzer base anyway, and just do the same thing for your propagation. Um, just add the same amounts and you should be okay. Some of the literature out there recommends discarding beer from the propagation process due to potential differences in flavor profiles. In my experience, those differences are surprisingly negligible, and it's fine to just blend that propagation beer with another tank or sometimes even just treat it as the normal product without blending. What do you recommend? Yeah, I was, would say blending is definitely good good practice. And I agree that you don't have to really discard it. I think that the profile is in most cases is, is very close, um, especially if you can blend it away a little bit. I'm not sure that I would use it as is necessarily for a product you want to sell. But I think if you blend it one-to-one or even, even lower quantities, you diff- typically you're, you're okay. I want to cover a topic that isn't really directly related to yeast propagation, but I guess yeast management is more the appropriate term. We've definitely talked about this during other episodes, but I still regularly encounter brewers who don't seem to understand or follow best practices here. Talk about how you handle yeast between brewery fermentations and what's critical for short-term yeast storage. Yeah, I guess the the key there is short-term storage. Um, ideally, anything below, I mean, three days it would be considered short-term, I guess. Ideally, be even less than that. But anything above that, you're going to run into issues where yeast just runs out of nutrients and then uh, just viability and vitality goes down pretty dramatically. So the quicker you can pitch that yeast back into your process, the better it is. Um, if you really have to store yeast for a very long period, I'm talking four or five, six days a week or something like that, maybe add a little bit of wort from the brew house, bring the temperature down. Uh, at that point, yeast isn't going to be as active, but at least ha- it has access to nutrients. And that's going to keep it alive much better than just it's sitting there. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that the yeast itself, when it sits in a fermenter or yeast brink, it just is static and the temperature transfer is really not ideal. So somehow moving that around is, is, is good, is good practice. Um, even Either you have an impeller or if you maybe pump it from one tank to the next in, in the worst case scenario, or if you're really just adding a lot of fresh warts that basically recreate some sort of a fermentation again. Again, if you do that at lower temperatures, it's going to take a longer time and you don't have to worry about constantly adding fresh wort to it on a, on a daily basis. Okay. And where would you definitely not store that yeast? Uh, the, the, the bucket that sits in the cold room is probably not ideal. Um, How about the cone of the previous brew? That is also not very good. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you, if you have yeast sitting in a cone, again, the yeast temperature, the temperature transfer is not ideal because yeast is a good insulator. So the temperatures at the outside of, at the outside of that, that yeast is going to be colder and then the inside may warm up. So it's very uneven temperature gradient. And again, yeast just sits there without nutrients under high pressure with relatively high CO2 concentration. So pulling that off as quickly um, and then pitching it into the next brew is the ideal scenario. But if you have to store it for a longer period of time, definitely pull it off the fermenter to add a little bit of nutrients, cool it down, and then let it sit there 
that should should work as well. I try to teach every new brewer that yeast is bad for beer once fermentation is over, but um, I think we still got a lot of work to do to to get that message out to everybody. We're trying, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's there's some some really simple rules that you should follow, and if you do, then your yeast is going to be healthy and happy, and your beer is going to be good. But uh, definitely focus on that because I think a lot of people maybe or a lot of times you can you can tell that people just don't think about yeast very much and how to to keep it alive and how to keep it happy that's that's relatively easy to do and will really result in in, in a lot of uh better fermentations and a lot less issues throughout your process do you want to talk about the options for long-term yeast storage in the brewery you already mentioned sort of um you know the cryo procedure that you you're doing um do you want to talk about any any other options for other other breweries so if you want to keep yeast for a longer period of time, there's definitely different different options available. Uh, the cryo storage is definitely the best long-term storage. I've, I've pulled yeast out of that that was in there for 40 years and it came right back. So it's definitely a successful way to do it. Maybe not every strain is going to be able to survive that long, but it's been proven that they can stay in there for a really long time. You won't get any genetic drift, and the risk of, of risk of contamination is also relatively low. If 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 not, well, if if you don't touch the yeast, it, it should be pretty much zero. Um, some other options, if you don't have access to that kind of equipment, is to uh, streak yeast on auger slands and keep those in your dedicated cooler, ideally in the lab. That will allow you to keep yeast around for probably two to three months or so, plus minus, depending on how healthy it was. Uh, if you take mineral oil, sterile min- mineral oil, and lay that over the auger slands, that'll keep the culture a little bit more, keep the the, the humid or the moisture content in that auger higher. That's going to extend it a little bit. The whole process is a little messy, so I'm not sure that I would recommend that on a, as a routine yeast uh, storage option. Uh, you can also keep yeast in its natural environment in wort and just basically put it in a flask, let it ferment, or put it in a flask, add the yeast to it, close it up, put that in a, in a cooler. Um, again, you're kind of mimicking the situation that you have in a brink at a colder temperature with nutrients. Probably not a extremely long storage method, so maybe month-ish plus for that and at that point you'd have to reculture it again which is a lot of work can be messy because you have to touch it there's always a risk of contamination there's a risk of you mixing up cultures so the more you touch the yeast the the more risk you have of um, mixing something up and and and, uh, just introducing an error into the whole uh, process I'm just curious. Do you do you use a lot of proprietary yeast strains at Urban Chestnut? And I ask because you know, obviously, going to all the trouble to you know do the cryo storage and all that. Um, you know, while you've got the equipment, you can do it. It's it's still it's a it's an extra uh, hassle and expense and whatnot. And you know, um, it, you know, just kind of weighing doing that versus hey, there's all these yeast labs out there that you can get nowadays pretty much anything you want from. So you know, what's the motivation for you? Is it just that you want the total control over it or are you, or is it more because you're using unique strains that aren't available elsewhere or is it something else that I'm not thinking of? Yeah, it's, it's the control factor, the flexibility. If we need yeast, 
in three, four days, we know that we can grow it up and, and have it ready to go without having to work with somebody else. There's no concerns about shipping the yeast. Even with overnight shipping, you have that yeast sit around for, well, I mean, I don't, I don't know how freshly that's always being harvested, at least 24 hours without any nutrients. Not ideal. And then typically you don't pitch it immediately because you kind of can't always rely uh, on it to get delivered when you actually need it. So that adds adds a quality factor to it. Um, yeah, those are probably the the biggest things. Um, and then cost is another one. If you if you have a system set up, yes, it's initial cost, and there's a little bit of labor involved. But if you have your processes set up well, then uh, the cost is going to be considerably lower than buying that from from a supplier every time you need it, especially in, in larger quantities. Yeah, makes good sense. Cool. Um, all right, Florian, I think I'm out of questions. Uh, what did I fail to ask you about that you wanted to talk about? <laughs> the one thing, uh, Bill Mack and I are actually working on a, on a book about yeast, and hopefully we'll, we'll get that together very soon and uh, should get that published with MBA in, 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 by, by the end of the year is, 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 is the goal. So uh, hopefully wait for that. And it's, it's, we're, we're really trying to put some together that is a practical reference for, for brewers out there. Uh, a lot of the material that I talked about is going to be included in that and really will give brewers a practical uh, guide on how to approach yeast from essentially start to finish. So hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to provide some good information with that. That was Florian Kuplent here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a link to Florian's Master Brewers webinar. And if you find yourself in St. Louis, be sure to stop by Urban Chestnut. Both the beers and the food are fantastic, and they frequently host district St. Louis meetings. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Let's do it.